Hello, hello, and welcome to a new show on the FO Network. This is The Takeaway. My name is Kale Clinton. With me is Brian Knowles, where we will be breaking down some of the hottest takes in this week's NFL landscape. Brian, I'm excited for you to be on our inaugural episode of The Takeaway. Great to be here. We need a firefighter to put out some of these hot takes. Listen, it's it's a spicy week. The NFL, of course, is so perfect and primed for hot takes just based on the schedule. We get a dump of information from Thursday to Monday. We get a couple days to dissect it and really ruminate on all these takes. And then we do it all over again the next week. We do that 18 weeks straight. Figure there needs to be some kind of show in the media landscape that really, you know, take some time to marinate on some of these things, you know, break down just how spicy some of these takes are and how much truth really lies in some of these, you know, more out there statements. Uh, listen, I don't want to, it feels like we're going to dump a bucket of cold water on a, on a roaring fire, but we got to start with this Thursday night game, Brian. Must we, must we remember that, that actually happened? <laughs> just put that in, in a box and push the box away and never see the box again? Because that's what I think we should do with the last couple Thursday night games. Like, stuff it with the Christmas wrapping paper in January and your old winter coats in springtime. Just not look at them again until you really have to, but we must. It's it's part of it, you know. Amazon's gotten a pretty rough shake in the last three weeks of games. Uh, over 40 possessions uh without a single touchdown uh up until that commander's touchdown but we must dive in let's first start off with the athletic robert mays known chicago bears fan they're doing the breakdown on thursday night mays comes in pretty much decimating the chicago bears his hot take the Chicago Bears have broken Justin Fields. Let's listen from the man himself. No. That the team building mistakes and the team building missteps, the, there's so many different ways and so many different reasons that you've arrived at this moment. Yeah. And when you drop a quarterback into those circumstances, this is the result that you see. So I don't know what how you start this is his internal clock feels broken. But yeah. he's also dealing with a muddy, disgusting pocket almost immediately every single time he's supposed to drop back and throw. So he is not playing well. He's playing really, really poorly. But it's almost like he's just short-circuited at this point because of everything else that's happening. So offensive design, personnel around him, and the quarterback's own play, it's coming from all of these different directions. And that's why it's so hard to figure out how do you solve this? Because you're putting out so many different fires in so many different places. Brian, Justin Fields, the last few games, it's been an up and down battle. Nothing's really materialized in Chicago yet in over a year's worth of a sample size at this point. How hot is the take, Brian? The Chicago Bears have broken Justin Fields. It's mild at best. I mean, uh, it's hard to call someone fully broken after only, you know, a year and a third. But Fields has looked uh, like a nightmare. He is probably the worst passer in the league at the moment. Not the worst quarterback because his mobility puts him above someone like a Baker Mayfield who's just going to stand there and get clobbered. Fields at least going to run around a bit before getting clobbered. But he just he just doesn't seem to have any kind of uh, pocket awareness, any kind of uh, internal clock. I mean, he runs, he generates his own pressures, you know, by standing there and just and, and just letting the play dissolve. He needs to get rid of the ball quicker. The problem is the Bears have not get, given him anything with it to succeed. From a talent perspective, his offensive line is terrible. His receivers are terrible. And from a play design perspective, I don't know what the heck the Bears are doing. They're trying to make him into a stand-there pocket passer. With a guy who runs a 4-4-40, and we were all raving about his mobility coming out of the draft. When uh when the Bills drafted Josh Allen, what and he was terrible his first year too. What they did was basically build an offense out of all the good bits that make an offense works. Lots of play action, lots of moving pockets, lots of you know, lots of option kind of stuff. 
The Bears are doing none of that. The Bears are basically giving Justin Fields the challenge. Like, hey, can you stand there and be Peyton Manning? Can you stand there and be this, this great drop back passer? No, that's not what he does. What I have no idea what the Bears are thinking offensively other than, I guess we got to, other than they want to move on already. And who cares about what they build for Fields at this point? It's shocking what is around Justin Fields at the moment. Uh, you know, not only... Listen, I know they've had injuries on the offensive line, but they've also made decisions where, you know, in the offseason, Mace was pointing out, they caught offensive linemen because they thought they had the right answers in place with guys coming into the draft in decisions that could save them $9 million in cap. And where does that cap go? Not to the receiving room, where Fields is basically thrown to Darnell Mooney, a 25-year-old rookie in Vilas, uh, Vilas Brown, the, you know, really not working with a ton in the passing game. And you look at that last play, that fourth down play, it basically seals the game. You know, a couple people were pointing out David Montgomery running the wheel route in the back. You know, he's wide open. One, there's three guys standing on the goal line. Uh, That's not an open play. Fields is also taking that ball under center. So he's taking that ball to fake the toss. So he's not being able to read what the defense is doing. The six-plus defenders in the box that are matched up against the trips outside plus Montgomery. And also the route that Mooney runs. You run that in the end zone. You don't have to worry about the double clutch or, you know, it's it's play design, it's personnel, it's just about everything across the board. I did want to raise this, though. Our own Aaron Schatz had a tweet. Fields currently has a minus 43.3 pass DVOA through five games. It is up there with some of the worst in the league. Uh, Achilles Smith in 2000. Fields is the third worst amongst us, worse than J.P. Lawson, worse than Dwayne Haskins, Randall Cunningham, Brandon Whedon. It is a tough, tough list to swallow. The best case scenario is is Fields is Cunningham, that he's being put in these terrible situations over and over again. And if you give him someone who's actually going to use him properly, maybe he can develop in something else. But I don't want to like absolve Fields here because he hasn't improved at all himself from his rookie year. I know the change in offensive coordinator, the change in staff is makes it tough. But you see, you saw, you see uh, 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 Trevor Lawrence taking steps forward in year two. You see Zach Wilson taking steps forward in year two. If anything, Fields has taken steps back. He's holding onto the ball for longer. He's be less accurate as a passer. He's worse at getting to his second read. Like he doesn't know what to do. And while it's true he's not getting help, he's also not elevating anyone around him. I recognize that, Brian. But I'd also argue that the two quarterbacks you've mentioned are in objectively better situations than they were year one. You add Garrett Wilson and Brees Hall to the Jets offense with a strong offensive mind in Mike LaFleur. You completely shift what's going on in Jacksonville, not only bringing in Doug Peterson, but, you know, listen, make fun of the process all you want, but Christian Kirk, Marvin Jones, and Zay Jones are objectively better than what Jacksonville was dealing with last year. Fields has a worse receiving core pretty much point blank, even with Allen Robinson taking the hit that he has. The talent you bring in to supplement that has not been better. You know, Byron Pringle, uh, uh, is it Equinemius St. Brown? I it's yeah, it is Equinemius St. Brown. Equinemius St. Brown, the Keel Harry who is yet to play, but yeah. you know we know how that's panned out in New England. The question I pose to you, Ryan, given the situation he's in, and I still see flashes in that game. You know, the shot that Fields took at the end that actually ended up as a touchdown, or ended up putting them in close to goal to go situation. Like there's still little flashes. Is Justin Fields salvageable at this point? I think he's worth taking a shot at salvaging, and more than, for example, Sam Darnold was last season for Carolina. Because you, you do see those flashes. You do, you do see that athleticism coming through. And I think you can make the justified decision uh, statement that, well, the Bears have put him in the worst possible situation to succeed. I would not, if I was anyone at this point, do the Darnold trade and put him in. We're going to bring this guy in as our starter as a salvage guy. 
but like I don't I don't think we've seen the last chapter yet for uh you know for Justin Fields. I think his talent is obvious and his talent is not being used. His weaknesses are also obvious, but I would love to see him in an offense that actually seems to be designed around him instead of putting him as a square peg in a round hole. I'm on the exact same page. There are arguably, you know, any team in the NFL outside of the Carolina Panthers should take a look at Justin Fields. Uh, I think there's proof positive at this point that they need to stop taking on veteran quarterback projects and blow it up. But I still think there's hope in there to get something out of it. There's enough individual flashes and that that Ohio tape, that Ohio State tape still lingers in my head enough to say like, there's something in there that'll make it work. There's something in there that made Justin Fields up there with the Lawrence's, Zach Wilson's and Trey Lance's, say what you will of him at this point. But, you know, there was enough in there to say like, he is worth a top 10 to 15 pick in the NFL draft. I think he just ended up in the worst possible situation with which to execute that, especially with just the track record of quarterbacks that Chicago's gone. And honestly, the track record of quarterbacks coming out of Ohio state as well. I mean, (laughs) uh, Mike Tanner was pointing this out during our uh, FO discord chat during the game is that Ohio state always recruits just so much talent that it might make you, overestimate the quarterback skills coming out of that program because there are so many good receivers and linemen stuff that they have on a year to year to year to year basis you don't you don't want to helmet scout too much but the fact that you know this program keeps producing talented prospects who end up not doing much in the pros does make you question the overarching thing my question with fields is is he just broken beyond belief because i i go back and i think of uh david carr uh, and how he just got destroyed with the 2002 Texans and was never able to get anything put together after that because he just took so many sacks, took so much hits right off the bat that that just destroyed any chance he had of developing that internal clock at the NFL level. We might be there with Fields. That would be my biggest concern. It's the same deal with Darnold and the seeing ghost game in New England and then getting traded to a team with a worse offensive line than he had with the Jets. That didn't help things. But, you know, there's been a track record of it at this point where Guys just aren't salvageable. Jumping back to the Carolina Panthers at this point, let's move on to our next take. Biggest news of this week, Matt Rule fired as the head coach of the Carolina Panthers. Now, we're not going to dip into this well too often. The Ringer NFL show has a show called The Island, hosted by Nora Princiati, which, brilliant concept. Basically puts the premise of One writer gets out on an island and puts their hottest take. It feels a little too derivative for our show to dip into this well too often, but given the pressing news of the week, it felt fitting to frame the show with. Benjamin Solak of the Ringers take on the island this week. Never hire a college head coach for the NFL. Now, the take's basically centered around, you know, two ideas. We have some really awful recent examples in Matt Rule and Urban Meyer. But if we look within, you know, since the year 2000, we've got guys like Tommy Petrino, Greg Schiano, Steve Spurrier, Nick Saban. The biggest point that he makes is personnel control. Uh, you know, three of the bigger flameouts in the NFL, beyond Urban Meyer, which was a litany of <laughs> decisions at that point. Uh, but from guys like Bill O'Brien, Chip Kelly, and Matt Rule, all wanted personnel control. Reports out of The Athletic specifically said Matt Rule was so detail-oriented that he wanted say in digital media, including social media posts. That is the exact thing you want in a college head coach that cares about branding and recruiting, but not at the NFL level when that is completely outsourced and the only thing you have to worry about is game control. Now. How hot of a take is this, Brian? NFL, I mean, NFL coaches can never dip into the college well. You know, you put anything like never, obviously you up the spiciness of the take by one level automatically. Because uh, the, the, the fundamental problem is that there, there are a set of skills which you need to be a good professional coach. And there are a set of skills you need to be a professional college coach. And there's, while there's overlap, they're not the same. There's a Venn diagram here. And a lot of these coaches who are being brought up are so great at 
recruiting. They're so great at, you know, at, at schedule and they're so great at all that, all those college specific skills that when you bring them in and you just assume that's going to translate over to the NFL, that doesn't always work. So yeah, I would say, yeah, didn't never hire a coach who you're hiring because they have a reputation for turning around a college program or for keeping a college program at the top level over and over and over again, because the skills required to do that are not applicable to the NFL. You're not sitting down in some, you know, top prospects living room talking to their parents about the wonderful opportunities you're going to have at big state university. This, you know, you're dealing with professional athletes and not, you know, high school kids is an entirely different situation. Uh, I do think it's fine to hire coaches if you believe, if you're hiring them for innovative on-field things. If you see like, oh, this is the spread offense that, that they're developing. This is this defensive scheme that they're building up. That's fine because that translates. That's, that's something that I would like to see the NFL do more. Dip into college ranks to find people who are innovating and developing at that level. But when, you, when you're talking about someone like, like Saban or Spurrier, you're talking about they brought them in because of name recognition that name recognition was there in a large part because they were a- they're able to keep programs at a high level through recruiting through all through, through uh, just overpowering their their regular opponents via just the talent that they're able to draw in and you can't do that at the NFL level it doesn't work yeah it is it feels like two different worlds you know like the executive decision making and the all encompassing sort of brand identity you need to have as a college football head coach, whether it's recruitment, whether it's, you know, like we said, brand identity. Uh, All those things are so wholly outsourced by the NFL. And at that point, when you have a scheme in place, like having a general manager that knows more about you about more than you about salary cap and personnel decision, how guys fit, you can have some sort of say, or, you know, I think the best situations are like the ones in, New York right now, where Brian Dayball and Joe Schoen come from a like-minded system and are on the same page. You see the most success in the NFL when those guys are on the same page. And you see in so few situations, you know, Bill Belichick up to 2019 is maybe one of the most major exceptions, where the head coach has the ability to actually manage both. But you have to be such a historically brilliant football mind to be able to juggle those positions making the transition to college uh, from college to the NFL is tough enough even our biggest success stories you know Tom Coughlin Pete Carroll Jim Harbaugh Uh, Carroll and Coughlin specifically took multiple shots at the NFL before they really stuck and I think the biggest thing for me is that the landscapes are too different Uh, one of the biggest stories I forget where the reporting's from but it stuck out to me from a few years ago where one of the biggest examples of the difference in the two landscapes comes from Andy Reid, who, again, one of the best head coaches in the league, one of the most brilliant offensive minds currently in football. One of the biggest things he emphasized in training camp, you'd think he's kind of a hard-nosed guy, and you know, he's still pushing guys, but it's conversation about, like, at the end of the day, like, you know, we're all trying to get paid. We're all trying to make money. It's a completely different mindset than what it is at the college football where you talk about pedigree and titles. You've got a four-year window of interchangeable guys coming in and out to create some sort of lasting legacy. At the end of the day, the NFL is a job. And I think NFL coaches have a better job recognizing that than college coaches do, where they make football the end-all be-all. Yeah. I, do, I do think that's a lot of it. I, um, and I think just the way you treat a professional athlete versus a, a college student is different. And that shouldn't necessarily be. I mean, we don't want to say, uh, oh, well, Urban, what Urban Meyer is doing is totally fine for college and stuff like that. We don't want to go to that extent. But there is a bit of, like, your role as as a leader, as a, you know, as a manager is different when you're dealing with young young talent you're trying to develop and who are still growing into adults as human beings than towards someone who's getting $50 million. You have to deal with these people differently. And it's not a skill set that everyone has. There are plenty of professional coaches who would be terrible in the college ranks. That that They're just two different things. Now, Brian, as a larger sort of question in this, you know, you mentioned that bringing in guys with great scheme or great ideas is a good, is a plausible idea because college tends to be, what, five, ten years ahead of the NFL in terms of 
actual scheme and uh, you know personnel grouping brought in and actual ideas that show up on the field. Now, most of these head coaches that we see in the league, you know, do come from NFL backgrounds as a whole, either working their way wholly up through the system or having some sort of playing experience, at least some sort of knowledge of what goes on at the NFL level. Do you think there's a way to sort of expedite this process to kind of, you know, a, a theoretical onboarding for these guys that could potentially take place or do you really have to sort of pick and choose the right guys where it's a little bit more of a shot in the dark and a hope for the best? The problem with onboarding is that you have to convince the person who wants to be onboarded. Like, if you're already having major success at a college level, it's hard to say, hey, come to our team and get some, you know, work experience as you work your way up to potentially being a head coach. Like, well, I'm currently the head coach at Big State University. Why do I want to, like, you know, go through, you know, your, your journeyman apprentices program? Why do I want to be your coordinator for a few years? Why do I want to coach in the USFL or something? Like, no, I, if you're already at the top of your profession in one field, doesn't I don't think there's going to be a lot of, lot of appeal for anyone to go, yeah, I, I want to learn how to be an NFL coach now. I see it more from the coordinator perspective because at the college level, you know, with guys being culture builders, with guys being executives, there's so much that has to be delineated that I feel like most of the best ideas come from coordinators and, and guys who are individually running offenses. At the NFL, you want, ideally, your head coach to have some sort of play calling experience, some sort of experience implementing offense. So I'm not necessarily saying, you know, let's take Jim Harbaugh and make him a DC. I'm saying, let's take Harbaugh's DC and make him, maybe it's a lateral move going to the NFL. But you're taking on fewer responsibilities. You're in less living rooms. You're arguably being held up to less uh, scrutiny by media, or arguably less. You're getting less FaceTime, at least. But, you know, maybe there's a way where you could technically make a lateral move by going from college coordinator to pro coordinator with some opportunity to get a pathway to NFL experience. I don't know. I'm just theorizing, but I feel like there's just too many good concepts at the collegiate level to completely let this farm system dry up. I don't think I don't think you're totally off base there. I do think there's someone for that. If you can find a pro head coach who's willing to, you know, bring someone in, like bring someone that who's might be getting for their job if they don't do very well very quickly. I will point out that Jim Harbaugh's defensive coordinator for years was Vic Fangio, and we saw how that happened when he finally got his head coaching job in Denver. Very fair. Very fair. Speaking of Denver, what a transition, Brian. <laughs> Moving on. The quarterback in Denver right now, Russell Wilson, has not been playing great. Granted, some of it may be credited to an injury that, by the way, Russell Wilson refuses to call an injury. Uh, stopped himself at the podium from using the I word uh, when talking about his potentially torn lat. But beyond that, the numbers haven't been of the expectation of a guy like Wilson. Currently 20th among quarterbacks in DYAR, 20th among quarterbacks in DVOA. Now, Max Kellerman of Keyshawn, J. Will, and Max, an ESPN show feature on YouTube, had a spicy one, if I can say so myself. Is Russell Wilson playing himself out of Hall of Fame consideration with the abysmal start in Denver. Let's listen to Max. Is Russell Wilson playing himself out of the Hall of Fame? If this continues. If, 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 it just, if he said, I'm retiring today, my guess is he would be voted into the Hall of Fame eventually. Correct. But sometimes what happens after the fact sheds light on someone in a way that can make them look worse. What if Pete Carroll continues to win with Geno Smith? What if it looks the same and then someone else and it looks basically the same as Russell yeah, Wilson I, and he wins another Super Bowl? Yeah, I don't think Russell you. I don't think. Flat. I don't think you can play yourself out of the Hall of Fame when you've been there. When you think about it, look at the New York Giants and look at the situation with Eli Manning. You know, he won two Super Bowls, but along the way, he clunked along. Then he won the Super Bowls. He played himself into a. Uh, Potential Hall of Fame, potential first ballot, maybe it's a second ballot, whatever the case may be. But when you think about it, players like that 
always get the benefit of the doubt because the media likes his New York. It's the Giants. It's they winning Super Bowls. He has a last name, Manny. You play yourself into it as long as you can maintain something. He won those two Super Bowls, and it's like like you like to say, Max. At the end of the day, Eli basically was a was a shell of himself. At the end, doesn't mean yeah. he played himself out of it, right? New York Giant football. Now, Brian, we can have our own debate about whether Eli Manning is a Hall of Famer at this point. Smuggling but how spicy, yeah, <laughs> speaking of hot takes, but let's stick with Russ for a second. Is Russell Wilson current playing himself out of Hall of Fame consideration? How spicy of a take is that idea? If you are capable of playing yourself out of Hall of Fame consideration after five games, you were not in Hall of Fame consideration to begin with. <laughs> I'm sorry, that is ridiculous. Uh, I it, it's less ridiculous to say that Wilson has not built up a resume to get there. That's an argument you can make. That, oh, yeah, he was definitely going to be in the Hall of Fame. But now that I've seen him play for a less than a month and a half, now I'm totally on the other side of it. That's crazy. That's absolute craziness. Yeah, that's the thing to me. Hall of Fame contention in general feels like a cumulative statistic. It feels like you're either accruing certain milestones, you're adding things to a resume. To say that not only your small stint in a new team discredits previous work, but also sheds, you know, limits how meaningful that previous work actually was. That that in itself is a is a hot take of an idea to me. I don't know. I, my additional thing is. This trickling out of uh, animosity, for lack of a better term, toward Russell Wilson between uh, the Legion of Boom basically dancing on his grave in week one, uh, Sherman, Richard Sherman on the Amazon desk on Thursday night during the Colts game, uh, basically bursting a blood vessel in his head, screaming to run the ball on the goal line. Uh, Does the addition of this sort of personal sabotage the sabotage of wilson's personal image factor into this at all because i feel like wilson for a while was such a media darling and was such a fixation amongst just had a really like high likability rating within circles at least like on surface level within the rest of the community he's a quirky guy but he at least seems likable enough with with memes of Melvin Gordon staring him down on the sideline or, you know, everything we've seen out of the Legion of Boom in recent weeks. Does the indictment on personal image factor into this at all? I think it does. I, I, I do. Um, his you're, you're right that he was, at least at the beginning of his career, the media darling. But that, uh, we'll, we'll call it quirkiness. We'll, we'll, we'll go with that. That has grown in proportion. That's not a new thing this year. That has been growing for the last couple years. Uh, basically, ever since the Super, the Super Bowl loss uh, uh, in Seattle, that, that's been growing and growing. Because he's a weird dude. And weird, that doesn't keep you out of the Hall of Fame. But that is weird. And if you don't have the respect of your teammates and stuff like that, that does become an issue when you're not a no-doubt Hall of Famer. And there's no way that Russell Wilson is currently a no-doubt Hall of Famer, you know, with one ring and a, a laundry list of highlights, but then also the let, whole let Russ cook on all the kind of weird things that happened in the last five years. When you're on the borderline, then you start getting, uh, you know, people coming out of the woodwork. You, you have your voters calling old teammates, old coaches, and listening to what they have to say about things. And if all of his teammates are out there saying, man, I have no respect for Russ. He couldn't do this. He couldn't do that. That is going to affect you in the minds of the voters. The, the for the counter example, Bryant Young, who got into the Hall of Fame this year, I thought was a was a borderline candidate. I mean, he had a, some great years of the 49ers in the nineties, uh, but I felt that he ended up like being a bit of accumulator by the end of his career. But that you know he played for a lot of really terrible Niners teams at the end and stuff like that. But basically, all of his past teammates came out of the woodwork and said that no, this is one of the greatest guys we've ever played for. You got to we got to put him in. He's been fantastic. And that pushed him over the hump, the, the, the universal support from all of his teammates and opponents and coaches. Russ does not have that at the moment. Russ is getting the exact opposite of that. So I wouldn't say that he's playing himself out of the Hall of Fame. I'm saying that he hadn't played himself fully in yet. And by leaving the door open, that lets the Legion of Boom push him back out. 
Yeah, it, you know, I don't know. I, I think maybe I had Tyler Lockett as an advocate there, but I see Geno Smith hitting cover two hole shots in the middle of the field, 50 yards down. And I think that song isn't going to be sung as sweetly. It's, I don't, I, I think like w- Wilson's case at this moment is that his peak, he, listen, I don't know, and maybe this is a hot take of my own. I don't know if there's a single year where Wilson was top three, maybe top five among quarterbacks in the league in a single year. There's a reason Wilson's never gotten a single MVP vote. He's never played up to that level at a consistent enough basis to consider himself amongst the upper echelon. Now, as he ages, it's getting worse. Because now he's not running as much. He's averaging, I think, 14 rushing yards a game in Denver, uh, which is less than guys like Jacoby Brissett. Uh, He's now becoming a pocket passer that can't throw over the middle. Like, the sideline game still exists, but he can't – his game is always the game he's played. And the extra elements that made Russ Russ are fading. Ah, I don't know. it's, we're going to have a lot of referendums on teams in this show. We'll have a couple more to get into. Do you think this, do you think this gets saved? Do you think this ages well? Here's a hot take of my own. The Denver Broncos are going, still going to make the playoffs this season. Wow. What if I told you the Broncos were 18th in offensive DVOA? I'd be lying because they are actually more than 29th. But that's only because of the red zone performance. For the other 80 yards of the field, they're 18th. They're at a negative 2.2%, which is totally adequate considering how well their defense is playing. The problem is at the moment, they have the second worst red zone defense in the history, red zone offense in the history of, D, of uh, DVOA. That, that's very bad. But all the other teams up there were much worse overall than the Broncos are. If the Broncos can clear up their red zone performance just a little bit, they are going to start turning some of these close losses into wins. And for that to happen, Nathaniel Hackett has to realize that he has Russell Wilson and not Aaron Rodgers. Both of them very good quarterbacks, both of them entirely different quarterbacks. Hackett has not changed his system in any way, shape, or form to realize that, oh, I've got a short guy who's very mobile. Maybe I should take him and move him out of the pocket and let him do all the crazy nonsense and let him win game after game after game in Seattle. I think that adjustment is fairly easy to make. Will Hackett make it? I don't know, but I, I, it's there. And if that adjustment is made, I think the Broncos are going to be fine this season. Listen, I think the hottest take of the season was Denver ownership handing Russell Wilson a five-year, $240 million contract before he took a snap. But we'll let that play out. Yeah. <laughs> Moving on. Diving into take from Oliver Connolly of The Guardian. Made an appearance on the Mina Kimes show featuring Lenny this week. And a breakdown of New York Jets versus Green Bay Packers. Speaking of Aaron Rodgers, Connolly's main take is a, a, a bit of disdain with the Jets offense at the moment. As someone who wrote the Jets chapter, I've been keeping a bit of an eye on this season. Basically, his take is Zach Wilson has been very inconsistent. And Michael Floor's offense, he's talked about, is, is pretty fat-heavy. He, he's dialed up mostly a lot of unnecessary motion in his eyes. And we'll let Connolly speak for himself here, but he's not a big fan of where the Jets are at. Oh, they do so much motion. And I know you said you read my stuff. And it's a giant bugaboo of mine that we've come to this kind of football discourse where the higher you are up the motion charts, you just magically are innovative in some way, or that's good offense. And it's just not if the motion is pointless or inconsequential. Or one of the things they do all the time is they motion into bubble and they throw the bubble to the motion man who's being tracked in man coverage. The point of the motion was to reveal the man coverage, right? So why are you just throwing it to a bubble where then the guy just gets popped behind the line of scrimmage? It makes no (laughs) sense. And so they fly up the motion chart and somehow that's good offense and the floor is decent. It's just not execution from Zach Wilson. So much of their general design, particularly in the RPO game, which is what they featured with him because that's the thing that he's really special at, right? You can drop the arm angle anyway. You don't know where the ball is. The ball's flying past you. A lot of that stuff is just pointless. 
um, in terms of them actually moving the ball. He's been at his best when he just kind of panics, flees the like pocket, mix. and then he's special. Now, Brian, how spicy is it take that the Jets offense is uninspired and mostly unimproved? Um, it, well, it, it, the fact that it's unimproved is wrong. They are currently sitting at a uh, minus 2.7%, uh, sorry, a minus 3.5% offensive DVOA, which is the Jets' best since 2015. They are, they are significantly better than they have been. And Colin Wilson is inconsistent. It's hard to do this year. When he's played two games, like he was inconsistent from game one to game two. Is that is that how we're basing the hot take on here? He hasn't played much because he's been hurt. Uh, I I don't I don't agree with this take at all. I, I think this is way too early to be saying that oh that that the offense is unnecessary and unimproved and stuff like that. I think they've been notably better through the first few weeks of the season. Yeah, I think my biggest gripe with the take, for lack of a better term comes in LaFleur's mismanagement. If you're harping on a a bad design in the sense that, yeah, you're using motion to reveal coverage, but then you're using that bait as the actual target, that's bad process. I recognize that. But there's so many better things that LaFleur has done. Uh, when Derek Klassen and I were talking film, uh, one of our first episodes of Film Breakdown was just how well LaFleur has maximized the talent of guys like Garrett Wilson, you know, throwing him in a stack in order to create cushion and get Wilson open immediately, uh, you know, using Brees Hall in really unique ways to try and maximize his strengths in space. I'm genuinely really impressed with how LaFleur's designed offenses. And it started last year where they had nobody really to work with and LaFleur was kind of forced to run like five gadget plays a game to really like get guys open and kind of get ultra creative. I think he's been a decently creative offensive mind. If Wilson's making bad reads and throw into the motion, man, not like properly understanding the course of the offense. That's one thing. I think Wilson might Zach Wilson. I'm um, a lot of Wilson's on the jets. It's like the Patriots and the Joneses. Uh, there's some, maybe there's still some cerebral issues there. You know, Wilson's still a young guy. He's still got a couple questions with regards to his processing, in my opinion, but I just don't see this one. I don't know. I, I think LaFleur's been a solid mind for the Jets so far. And, and remember, Wilson's still also playing himself back into shape after missing most of preseason, pre-season with, with an injury. Like, it, it, it is far too early with all the good things that Jets are doing to say, oh, well, things are having improved and stuff like that. It's jumping to a conclusion for the sake of jumping to a conclusion, I think. I mean, he's not wrong that there are plays which don't look good. You can look at any coach and find plays that don't look good. That, that, that happens sometimes. You try and do something, it doesn't work. Then you, when you try to do something clever and tricky, and it doesn't work. You look like an idiot. That happens. That's just one of the one of the uh, you know one of the dangers of being an offensive coordinator. Yeah, of course. My my biggest thing with them is just if there's any indictment on the floor, it's not using everyone at this point. It's not maximizing everyone's talent. He's gotten a good amount of Garrett Wilson, but Garrett Wilson still ranks 51st amongst wide receivers in DYAR. 50th in DVOA amongst receivers. He's gotten some improved play out of Corey Davis, who's finishing 22nd in DYA and 21st in DVOA, respectively. The biggest falloff here has been Elijah Moore, in my opinion, who, in terms of the league stratosphere as a whole, especially wide receiver talent, in terms of just general uh, perception, there isn't a wider gap, really, between perceived value and on-field production, as what I've seen in Elijah Moore. Uh, Elijah Moore, theoretically, in the skill set he has, has been great. And he's just not gotten the ball as much as I'd have liked him to. uh, Has not produced nearly to the level I personally think he's capable of. Uh, The Jets really have a solid trio here. Having three guys in the top 60 of DYAR and DVOA, not something the Jets have really had in quite some time. It's like we talked about when comparing Wilson to Fields, the talent surrounding them is a genuine upgrade. Where do you think improvement could lie for the Jets? I think you still just your team is so young. I think that the, the a lot of improvement just comes from more reps and more work together. I think that you have this young core of promising players. Not all of them will work out, but. You want to see them grow and develop together and develop that chemistry over time. 
And that's why it was so bad when Wilson got hurt, you know, the preseason that you just lost a month of working with everybody together. I, 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 I think that things are just going to keep improving as, you know, as LaFleur gets more comfortable with what his players can do, as the players get more comfortable with what Wilson can throw, when Wilson gets more comfortable where receivers are going to be. It's just, it, things are promising, things take time. It's, it's a long history of, of problems in New York. Things didn't get fixed overnight. That's not a huge surprise. I think they're pointing in the right direction, and patience is what's needed at this point. Yeah, you and when you and I wrote the uh, divisional breakdowns for uh, over-unders headed into the season, uh, I think one line I had mentioned was, I, you know, I really liked Jets over, I think it was five and a half. Yeah. Uh, my whole thing was writing in the article, based on the slate of games that the Jets had early, I would have been semi-optimistic on them hitting that mark if they headed into their late bye with two wins in the first nine weeks because the back half of their schedule is easy. Jets are 3-2 and two right now and have beat up on some surprising opponents. You, you, you know, I get you're playing Skylar Thompson in week five, but hanging a 40-burger on that Miami Dolphins defense is, is you know, one of no my favorite one of my favorite stats though is that the Jets have yet to play a game where both teams have had their number one quarterback the whole way, and the Jets have won every game where they have had their quarterback and lost every game where their opponents have had their number one quarterback. So that's uh that 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 kind of that might explain the Jets season by there more than any minutiae about oh does are the bubble screens working? It's it's good when you have your starting quarterback and bad when you don't have your starting quarterback. <laughs> Listen, Occam's razor. Sometimes things are way easier than we make them out to be. Now, of course, in the sake of fairness within the entire, uh, you know, sanctity of hot take dumb, uh, we've got to put up one of our own to scrutiny. There's no, there's no one better, really, Brian, than uh, to put up to scrutiny first, to proverbially throw to the wolves of me and you. Then our own takesmith, Mike Tanier, who kicked off walkthroughs on Monday this week with about as blatant a a headline as you can have, Dan Campbell exposed. Starting it off calling him the worst kind of con man, a sincere snake oil salesman who believes his own bullsnot. Now, his argument essentially is number one offense headed into their game against the New England Patriots, at least by scoring metrics, get 29-0 hung up on them. Campbell is 4-17-1 as a head coach. It's been a series of coaching miscalculations, uh, what he calls seat-of-the-pants decision-making, an anemic defense, uh, and overall just lapses in coaching. and. Even making an indictment on Aaron Glenn, Tanir points out, is an indictment on Cable himself because last year the problem was offensive coordinator Anthony Lynn. So if you're flip-flopping in the coordinators, when you bring in the executive, like we've talked about in the LaFleur argument, all that decision-making gets put on the head coach. Brian, how spicy a take is it? Dan Campbell exposed the worst kind of con man. And I, I say this with love because I know that this is exactly what Mike was looking for of this kind of take. But his hat band is far too tight if he thinks that Dan Campbell has suddenly been exposed uh, after one really bad game against the Patriots. Uh, he's really pointed, oh, you said the offensive coordinator problem and you fired him. Well, now the Lions have, have our 14th in offensive DVOA and they're, they're the best total since, I'm scrolling down here, since 2012. Yeah, look at the offensive coordinator. Might have been some of the problem because now the Lions offense is really good. One game after four games of really great play does not does not invalidate what we've seen over the first month. Uh, I I certainly don't think Campbell's above criticism. Don't get me wrong. Uh, you know, four seventeen one is not good, but the coverage weren't just bare when he got there. The coverage had been hadn't been even been assembled yet. He had to you know he had to you know he went to IKEA got the flat pack stuff. He had to start building from scratch. Uh, the locker room culture, the 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 attitude around Detroit is so much better, and we're beginning to see that pay off on the field when he says that you know uh, seats of the past decision making uh i would rather my coach be too aggressive than not aggressive but it's not the decision making that's really the problem it's the execution and when they went 0 for 6 on fourth downs this past week 
only one of those by by anyone's numbers, be it our analytic, be it our uh, you know our model or Ben Baldwin's model, only one of those was wrong. And that was the fourth and nine kind kind of kind of uh, decision, which ended up being the defensive touchdown. All the other five decisions were supported by it, by by the numbers, supported by any kind of of calm rational analysis of the situation. Uh, they didn't work, and when you have outsized failure on very high impact plays, of course that's going to look bad, and things kind of spiraled out of control from there. But the idea that you know that he's been exposed after leading the league in points is no, 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 no. I, I it, it's great for clicks, it's great for eyeballs, but no. Now, how much do you put into the indoor outdoor narrative? Because first four games indoors. Three of them at home, one of them in the Vikings dome. Second, they step outside, over. Now, remind me how many of those first four games were against Bill Belichick? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. that's that seems to be more, you know, yeah, a really great defensive coordinator who has a you know multi decade history of throwing curveballs at you know people and and knocking them out of the game. I, I think I trust that one a little bit more than oh, it got a little cold outside. I, I do I I am not concerned about that. The biggest thing to me, uh, I was watching uh, uh, Chris Vassor, Coach Vass, uh, break down Patriots defense versus Lions offense uh, in a tape session that he does on YouTube. The Patriots were putting in these crazy overexposed fronts to stop wide zone running, and this is ignoring you know the fact that they completely locked up T.J. Hawkinson, which Belichick is known for. You know, take away the top weapon, beat us with anything else. But they basically just put themselves in these overly exposed, uh, like, positions to basically stop the uh, stop wide zone runs. And if you cut it back into inside zone, you've got it all day. The lack of adjustment there I have questions about, which is, again, why we talked about earlier in the college stakes, how you want your play caller to have the experience to you know, see those adjustments and have control of it himself. I don't fully hate the argument. I just think Campbell's leash is, you know, half of his job was to be the culture changer. Good idea or not, you needed it. When you're moving on from Matt Patricia, where after his first season as head coach, pending free agents popped champagne bottles in the locker room because they were so excited to leave. Uh, Real start. I still that sticks with me forever. Uh, how long do you think the leash is on Campbell? Because arguably, in my opinion, half of his job has been accomplished. Guys are bought in. There's a culture of winning. You watch Jamal Williams on Hard Knocks crying about like how hard he wants his team to win. I can get the Campbellisms wearing thin and that being sort of the snake oil that Tanir is talking about. But in actuality, in terms of him as a leader, him as a Often, or, you know, as a head coach in general, how long do you think the leash is on Campbell? You do have to start winning eventually. All of the things we're mentioning are, are really nice. Uh, but, yeah, eventually he's got to start winning. I don't think there's really anything he could do to get fired this season unless, you know, he starts getting shut out game after game in the offense, which was so good for a month, just all of a sudden entirely evaporates. Uh, but short of something like that, I think he does get another season pretty much no matter what. Uh, there's certainly a lot that you can criticize with him. I don't want to come out and say here that that Campbell has been, you know, perfect, especially when you see what Brian Dayball has been able to do immediately in New York. But he has, there's been enough tangible, obvious improvement over what he was left with that the, the Lions would be making a mistake if they if they cut him short after this season. He's listen. You got to convert into wins eventually, but at this point, I think he's bought too much goodwill. You know, next year, I think it's immediate hot seat. Uh, you know, let's get a quarterback in place to see, you know, Jared Goff has played well above his means in terms of what we've expected of Jared Goff. Uh, this team also gets Jameson Williams back, so that's another offensive weapon you get to add. Uh, but, you know, I think he's earned enough goodwill. He's not in any sort of danger this year. But I think if you're looking by, like, week eight in 2023, if this team is below 500 or – in any capacity, I think Campbell might be going. Yeah, he's got to convert these things into wins sooner rather than later, but I think he's going to get at least another year to to do that. Moving into the fantasy corner of the show. That's right. 
No section of football is safe at this point. We're getting into positional value on players. Let's first start out with establish the run. Came out with a YouTube short today or the other day, breaking down why you should trade DeAndre Hopkins right now before he's even started the game. Sell DeAndre Hopkins. I know what you're thinking. I've been holding DeAndre Hopkins all year. All year, he's been sitting on my bench, Adam. I've been waiting for this moment for DeAndre Hopkins to get off suspension. Yes, this is also when his perceived value is the highest. Once he gets out there and shows that he's 30 years old with this freaking idiot Cliff Kingsbury, nobody's going to want DeAndre Hopkins. And so the peak value of DeAndre Hopkins is actually before, before he plays a game. And I get that it sucks you've held him this whole time, but you got a discount on draft day. Now you've held him. His value is theoretically higher. And so once he gets out there, if he gets out there and looks bad, it's over. You're not going to be able to get anything for him. Brian, how hot of a take? Sell DeAndre Hopkins now before it's too late. It's not crazy. Uh, I mean, because his numbers last year were not up to where we expect to see him from him. And he's right that you're not going to get any more. You're not going to get any more value from him than you are right now. Assuming you have no trust in the Cardinals offense. Do you have no trust in the Cardinals offense at this point? I'm not, I'm not 100% sure. If I've been holding Hopkins for this long, it's because I do have some faith in the Cardinals offense. So why would I trade Hopkins now that he's finally going to get onto the field? I, I wouldn't trade Hopkins at this point if I had him. But I also wouldn't have had him in the first place. So that puts me in a very awkward position where you should have traded him if you had drafted him in the first place. But then, yeah, no, I don't know. Hopkins is 30 this year. Last year... You know, between this injury and other things, finished seventh in DVOA, but 19th in DYAR amongst wide receivers. So efficiency is there. Cumulative production isn't overexpected. My biggest danger, Brian, same week he comes back, Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 drops, the typical back half of the season, Kyler Murray, Cliff Kingsbury collapse happens. I don't know if Hopkins will be enough to stave off the regression we know is inherent at this point with Kingsbury, who, again, getting back to college coaches, one of their biggest things is that college coaches don't make adjustments year to year. They, they, they're, you know, very poor doing it week to week, let alone year to year. And seeing the lack of transition in Cliff Kingsbury first half, first back half numbers, this is getting away from the meme of, Kyler being like four and 31 on double XP weekends for Call of Duty. I get there's all, you know, fun and good in that. I, I'm not ready to call this a totally hot take yet because you know, at some point you're getting into like economic theory. It's, it's perceived value versus actual value and you're maximizing on your talent before you actually see a product there. Unless you think that DeAndre Hopkins is going to come out and be a world beater. I get you right there. I wouldn't be totally dissuaded on keeping Hopkins. You know, it, it feels much, like it very depends on what situation your fantasy team is. To be perfectly honest, I mean, if you have other receivers, yeah. If you, if Hopkins gives you a surplus of receivers, yes, it should be Hopkins you're trading and not someone else because he's right. His value is not going to be higher right now because he's a mystery box. He could be anything. You know, he he's got all the name recognition that's coming back and rested and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That might not continue. So if you are going to trade a receiver because you need to fill a hole somewhere else, now is the time to do it for Hopkins. But like, if you've been saying on Hopkins because you need another receiver and you've been waiting for him, no, no, just, just just you draft him for a reason. Stick him in your lineup. Moving on to again, offenses we might have questionable faith in. Rigor Fantasy Show puts out a show this week, power ranking the players you should cut. And I don't have a clip for this because it was basically the first. 15 minutes of the show. We don't have that kind of time. But the basic premise is you can basically cut every player on the Rams, not named Cooper Cup or Tyler Higby. They lead with Allen Robinson, who has 12 catches through five games, which is as many as Nico Hardman, Olamide Zacchaeus, a uh, few of the guys like Sterling Shepard, whose season ended two weeks ago. Uh, it moves on to Matthew Stafford, who only has five passing touchdowns and seven interceptions as the Lowest, second lowest uh, air yards per attempt of his career behind only his rookie season. He's 26 in DVOA. He's 25th, uh, sorry, 26 in DYAR, 25th in DVOA. They also get into Cam Akers and Daryl Henderson, who, while being woefully underproductive in the run game, also play behind a pretty anemic offensive line at this point. 
Brian, how out of a take is it? Basically anyone not named Cooper Cup. Tyler Higby as well in there to a lesser degree is basically up for grabs at this point. My only problem with this take is it's two weeks too late. If you if you are still holding on to the Rams now, you might as well keep holding on to them because there's a light at the end of the tunnel. But they have been so bad for the last couple of weeks that if you that you should have gotten rid of these players weeks ago. The thing is, a lot of the Rams' problems right now is that they're down to a third string center and a second string guard and another second string guard and a second string tackle. They have had so many injuries on the offensive line. We joke about stars and scrubs, but the, any team would be struggling when they're having, you know, a, a third string center in there. You can see a lot of times when, you know, Stafford is not doing well. He's throwing interceptions, he's getting clobbered. That's because the interior line can't stop anyone. They, and not, they're not getting out physical. Just little stunts, the line games are just blowing them out of position because they are not calling the plays right. In two weeks, Brian Allen, the starting center, comes back. because they, they, they have a game this week against Carolina. Then they have a bye week. And Allen should be back after that. And that should raise all boats of the Rams offense. The fact that you're going to have someone there pointing at, hey, that guy might be rushing. You might want to stand in front of that guy so our quarterback doesn't die. And not only that, this team is going to get Van Jefferson back soon. Uh, you know, say what you will about the Odell Beckham situation, but they still haven't cleared out the guy's locker, apparently. So he could be back in the fold. Do you see the Rams getting back on track at this point, especially on the offensive side? Uh, it depends on what we mean by on track. I think they're going to look a lot better than they have. I, I, I do think that. I do think that help is going to need to come from players not currently producing, which including Jefferson, including, you know, write the blank check for Odell Beckham. So if you're holding on to, I don't know, Ben Skoranek and hoping he's going to have his, you know, his big year, unless you have a league that gets you, for like, gets you points for media coverage for being a fullback too, you can drop him. But I do, I do think the offense is going to race. If you're holding on to Stafford, I think it's okay to keep holding on to Stafford and keep keep him going because he's going to get protection. He's going to get more weapons. I do think that the hole they're digging themselves is bad for regular football. That that they may they may be digging themselves too big of a hole to get back into divisional contention, maybe even wild card contention if this keeps up. But I, for fantasy purposes, I think the offense is going to be okay, if maybe not to the same level as they were last year. The only reason I'd push back on you in terms of wild card contention, it's the NFC. Like, you know, I there are enough teams at this point where listen, I get the Giants have one of the easiest schedules in football. I am not sold on them as a four and one team, potentially making the playoffs in the first year with Dayball, especially the fact that they beat the Packers with fifth and sixth wide receivers is is such an anomaly to me that I'm I'm still surprised it happened, and I'm willing to just chalk it up to London as a wonky game. And if you believe in that, then you have to believe that the Packers aren't very good, which opens up the spot. And then if you believe the Packers aren't very good, well, maybe the Vikings aren't very good, because they're actually worse in DVR as a 4-1 team. Yeah, the NFC is still wide open there at the bottom, absolutely. But uh, the Rams have been worse than any of those guys so far, and if you keep, at some point, we're, we're a third of the way into the season, you do have to start winning some games. That, that, you know, yeah, maybe 4 ones a mirage, but it's still four wins in the bank. Yeah, you can't hedge takes for forever, no matter what your priors are. Yeah. Moving on to picks of the week. We're getting some prognostication early in this show as well. No one better to kick it off with than Chris Sims of NBC Sports. Him and Mike Florio going back and forth doing their picks of the week. Sims locks it in, his best bet of the week, Tampa Bay minus eight and a half. And I'll let him give his reason as to why. I'm going Buccaneers, obviously. Who the fuck is going to pick the Steelers to win a football game right now? Uh, they they stink. I don't know what like what else. Is, it's, I feel like the mystique of Steeler lore is like making this only eight and a half. I think Brady and company are going to throw the ball all over this defense, just like we saw, not to the extent Josh Allen. That was insane. But I, I don't see that stopping it. And then now – Oh, wait, all we have to do – I mean, they could take most of their D linemen off the field and still stop the Steelers' run game. So then all we got to do is worry about the pass game and some of that. I'm going 28-13 bucks here in this one. That's pretty cut and dry there. <laughs> Who the F is picking the Steelers to win a football game right now? Brian, how hard of a take is this? Where do you stand? I'm not taking picking them to win a football game right now. Absolutely not. I mean, minus 8.5, then you start getting into, again, game theory things like, you know, 
the Buccaneers might be up a touchdown and taking the air out of the ball kind of thing. And they've only thrown seven touchdowns this season, so we haven't seen the Buccaneers really live up to what we expected from them, too. The Steelers are just not in a good spot right now. On defense, they are they they look lost without TJ Watt. Kenny Pickett is it was all empty calories last week. They just they they are not in a good spot at all right now. And so yeah, no, 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 I don't think they're gonna win. Not at all. Listen, I don't think the pick's totally wrong. My question is, is there any sort of faith in this? I I get right now where they are defensively. Not only talking about TJ Watt. Micah Fitzpatrick's banged up right now. Levi Wallace is banged up. Terrell Edmonds is banged up. But I look, you know, I look at the Kenny Pickett to George Pickens connection. Uh, you know, even guys like Claypool who have fallen out of the mold. If Claypool's your wide receiver three, like you're doing something all right. Like, you know, you've got at least the talent there. The line hasn't been as good as it's been. The run offense has been, you know, Najee Harris is looks like a shell of his former self. Is there any upside to the Steelers team down the road? I think, you know. Oh, d- d- down the road, sure. I mean, yeah, but it's, down the road it's, it's this time. season, mind you. This yeah. season. Yeah, I think by the end of the year, things will get better. You would hope so. I mean, you got you got, you got got the top drafted quarterback in there. Uh, at the very least, they're going to end up throwing for more touchdown passes than they currently have. They currently have two touchdown <laughs> passes, which is not going to work out particularly well. And I like I like the potential of Pickett to Pickens in Pittsburgh, if not if for the alliteration, if for nothing else. But it's going to take some time. There is I do I still don't get what they've done with Kenny Pickett. I don't understand how they threw him in at you know the half of the game two weeks ago, rather than give him the ten days to prepare. He's just not ready yet, and it's going to be ugly. It's going to get ugly for a while before things start getting better. And they couldn't have th- like this was my whole thing. They couldn't have thrown him into a worse situation. You know. Mm-hmm. Your first full game is against the Bills, and you got to go against the Bucks. You've got Miami and Philadelphia right behind them. Halftime against the Jets is not a time to interject the guy, especially with that runway. I don't know. It's tough. Yeah. It's, yeah so, so as far as but the hot take is, it's not hot at all. No one's picking the Steelers to win a football game right now, and it's gonna be a, it's gonna be at least a month before anyone's picking the Steelers to win a football game. No, this team is nice, fresh, cold, ready to go. It is ready to be served out to anyone. Uh, you know, anyone can buy into this. You know, if if the Steelers pull this off at plus eight and a half, they are the lock of the week for any given Sunday. So, yeah, I think it's about as safe a bet to say that, yeah, no one is picking the Steelers to win a football game. Now, that'll do it for our first ever takeaway on the FL Show broadcast. Brian, thank you for joining me in our inaugural episode. But before we go, Got a little bit more time left. I just want to leave the floor open. We've opened ourselves up to a lot of scrutiny by making ourselves sort of the take prognosticators of the world, taking the temperature of everyone else around the media landscape. I want to give us an opportunity to put ourselves out there. You got a take that's really itching at you right now, Brian. Well, I, already, I already used up my Broncos to make the playoffs this season. So I'll, I'll, I'll give you a take for this this week. I'm not sure how hot it is, but I but considering the lines, I think it's hot. Falcons to upset the 49ers outright. The 49ers may not actually be healthy in any way, shape, or form. The Niners this week may be missing Nick from from their starting uh, defensive line. Nick Bosa, Javon Kinlaw, Eric Armstead, Aziz Alshire, Emmanuel Mosley, uh, Jimmy Ward, and uh, that's on top of missing QB one, RB one, uh, left tackle one. And kicker one on top of everything. So there's your hot take. The Falcons in their glorious 1960s throwbacks that they're going to wear this weekend to upset the Niners outright. Absolute beauties of uniforms to do it in as well. Uh, listen, this is a fun Falcons team. Uh, they haven't figured out how to get the ball to Kyle Pitts all the time yet. Uh, they haven't figured out, you know, certain elements. I still have questions about Marcus Mariota, but I mean, I've loved what I've seen out of Drake London. The defense looks marginally improved. The offensive line's still a problem, but, you know, at the very least, it's a fun football team. They're this year's good, bad team, like the Lions were a year ago. You know, they're not going to win very many games, but they're going to put more fear into teams than, than you would expect from someone at their win-loss record. This is, part, this is partly a take, partly an opinion. <coughs> Excuse me. I was watching ESPN, and they were previewing the NBA season, and I believe it was Zach Lowe had put out 
a ranking of league pass teams to watch. I don't know if it's a take. It folds in very well to your Falcons thing. I don't get why, especially with the launch of something like NFL Plus, uh, that they really got to sell as a product. I don't get why we don't sell more of let's watch these guys after the fact or, or let's, you know, our Sunday ticket teams of the week. You know, why aren't we marketing these lesser teams that don't necessarily show up on, you know, the news cycle every week because they're relatively irrelevant, for lack of a better term. Why aren't we selling these teams more like that? Like the Falcons are would fit that mold to a T just to either scout guys like Drake London or just watch a roller coaster of a game like Rams Falcons from the other week. You know, it, it's not it's not perfectable. You're not getting Bills Chiefs every week, but you know, you need something to fill the void. And some of these fun teams, you know, sloppy football or otherwise have to be marketed somehow. I think there's a big inefficiency in the NFL not trying to upsell those games further. Are you suggesting that the NFL's whole marketing and, and broadcast strategy of the NFL Plus isn't working in some way? Are you saying that this fine quality product that they're trying to get us to, guy, to get us by is in some way not living up to its potential? I, I don't know. I don't know. That might be the hottest take of them all. <laughs> well, I'll leave us on the most scorching take of the week, apparently. For Brian, I'm Kale Clinton. Thanks for listening. You can check us out every week on the FO YouTube Fridays. Come back here for more hot takes. This is the first of many. And I don't know about you, Brian. I am very excited about this show going. Good luck with it. Thank you very much. See you guys later. <laughs>